The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Today, we will discuss the Mountaineers' recent performances, the hiring of Tony Washington, plus we will reveal part three of our top 50 football players of the 21st century with rankings 40 to 36. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, before we get started, I just want to encourage everybody to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is the Voice of Motown podcast, which is a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown account. So make sure you search for both the Voice of Motown podcast and the Voice of Motown pages on all social media platforms. Give us a follow, shoot us a message, let us know what you think, and uh, if you're feeling generous, um, you can send us some money through our donation link in our bio on Spotify as well. So every little bit helps. Absolutely. And I think Brandon even started a TikTok account for us recently. Um, so check it out there as well if you have TikTok. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. So Let's get into it, guys. Um, first off, West Virginia finally snapped their seven-game losing streak with a win over Iowa State, only to begin a new two-game losing streak with losses against Oklahoma State and Kansas State. Um, pretty rough. I understand West Virginia is missing some pieces that make up a solid team. It's been said repeatedly this year the Mountaineers don't have big men underneath to provide offense around the hoop. They don't have a true point guard. They lack size, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I mean, I wasn't expecting them to be in the upper half of the Big 12 standings this year. However, Oklahoma State and Kansas State were two winnable games. And, you know, there's there's just no way Oklahoma State, who has a losing record, should have beaten the Mountaineers by over 20 points. And West Virginia had a 10-point second-half lead on Kansas State before they went ice cold for 10 straight minutes and ended up losing that game. So the Mountaineers consistently fade in the second half of games, whether we have a halftime lead or if they're trailing, it's almost a guarantee that we'll have a long stretch with no points. This team has Kansas next, and it's hard for me to convince myself that, you know, that game is going to be anything other than a beatdown. It's not looking good. Oh, yeah. I mean, the last two games have really kind of brought me down from that Iowa State win. I mean, the Iowa State win was nice. I think it made a lot of people feel better, especially probably the players as well, because that seven-game losing streak seemed like it went on for months. Um, but looking back at the Iowa State game, it seems kind of like it was a fluke. Um, we shot 50% from the field and 50% from three, and we just don't do that. And no team is going to do that regularly. And you kind of see that a lot. And it seems like it happens to WVU all the time where some team just gets hot from three and beats us or hangs in there with us when they have no business to. Um, one team I'm thinking of is, uh, what was it, Eastern Kentucky, who just caught fire from three and hung in the game with us, even though they had no business doing it. And I feel like that's what we did against Iowa State. Um, then we came back down to earth and showed who we were again against Oklahoma State and Kansas State. And that's really disheartening um, because Oklahoma State, I mean, we were close, like you said, at halftime. We were down six. And then we come out after the half and we get outscored 
um, 16 to four throughout the first eight minutes of the second half. Um, you know, just not finishing the game, not coming out with that fire that you need. And then Kansas State, like you said, th- that offensive game was really good. But, you know, if you look at the second half, um, you know, we started out with a 10-point lead for much of the first five minutes of the, the, ha- the second half. But then over the next nine minutes, we were outscored 21-4. to four. We had a scoreless streak of five minutes um, on top of that with the flagrant foul. And then we also did not make a field goal for a 10-minute stretch. Um, so that stretched from Cottrell's three-pointer at the 16-minute mark to Keddy Johnson's layup at 622. Um, and, and the problem that I'm seeing is it's it's not the defense. I think our defense is fine, even though there are times where we get beat up inside like we did against Oklahoma State with by Cisse, um, who had a huge game. What was it, 18 points, 10 rebounds? But the offense just doesn't have an answer. We're, there's no motion. There's no screening. There's no off-ball screening. Um, and it's something that, you know, hugs just keep saying we need to make shots, but I don't think that's the solution. You can't just say, Hey, we need to find people who can make tough shots and have that be the solution. If you don't have someone who can make tough shots, which many people don't because the people who make tough shots play in the NBA, um, you got to create openings. And I'm thinking how John Beeline did it. He created openings. He didn't have the most physical team. He didn't really have a, a post presence, even though Pitt snoggle was seven foot. He was a perimeter guy. He may do with it, um, and it doesn't seem like Huggins or anyone on the Huggins staff has the ability to come up with a modern-day offense that can get points when we need it. Yeah, the offense has been real stagnant just all year long. Um, you bring up beeline system, it would be nice to see more backdoor cuts and more just screens in general that aren't just you know the generic top-of-the-key screens that it seems like we like to run. Um, but you mentioned the Iowa State game, how we shot 50% from the field and from three. It seemed like everyone was really contributing that game, even the young guys. I mean, Kobe Johnson got the start against Iowa State and Oklahoma State before Hugs went back to Keedy in the Kansas State game. However, Kobe only played like 10 and 9 minutes in those starts that he got for the whole game. So, I mean, that's a decent amount of court time, but in a game like Oklahoma state where the game wasn't even close, wouldn't you want Kobe and some of the younger guys to get more time out there? A game that was largely uncontested in the second half. So why not give Seth Wilson more than 13 minutes? Kobe starts and only plays nine minutes. King plays one minute. Oconco doesn't play at all like why aren't we preparing these guys to be starters next year I'm not saying WVU should tank the rest of the season but that Oklahoma State game was over and we still had senior starters in there I say play the youth at this point yeah I don't even think it's tanking I think it's putting people out there who might give you something different when we've already seen like we said last week this the same people do the same thing over and over again um you know, over the past three games, Kobe Johnson has seen 24 total minutes. Um, but in those 24 minutes, and it's a really small sample size, so block box plus minus, which is that I really like, um, you know, isn't super great for this, but he still has an average box plus minus score of 7.6, which means during those 24 minutes, we have scored an average of 7.6 more points than we would with him off the court. Um, Seth Wilson. 38 minutes over the last three games. He's averaging almost exactly 13 minutes a game. It's kind of strange. It's like Huggins has him on a minutes restriction, even though he's a true freshman. Um, He's averaging, 
he has an average box plus minus of 2.9 points per game. So he is almost three points per game. WV is three points per game better with him on the court than someone else. Okonkwu, like you said, zero minutes. Jamel King, one minute. And Jamel King coming in was supposed to be a sharpshooter. And on a team who needs offense, you know, I don't see the point of sitting someone like that, even if he's bad on defense. Like, you know, we said this last week where if we give up an extra five points, but we score an extra eight, that's a win. Um, I'm okay with that. And I, I think Huggins, you know, the more I've watched him this year, I think he trusts the defense more um, because he does have bigger bodies down there that are good defensively. And he's not used to playing without someone who could protect the paint. And I think it gives him probably heartburn thinking about having a team that doesn't have someone down there who can reliably grab a rebound or block a shot or protect the rim. But I think with this team, you know, you might have to go that route because I'm not sure if Polycap, Kerrigan, and Cottrell are worthy of playing 40 minutes a game total between the three of them. Yeah, and, you know, I say play Wilson more. He's he's a big physical presence as a guard, and he can wear out the opposing team's point guard when you got a big body like that who he clearly likes to drive inside, so he's going to be making contact and making that point guard move a lot. So he might even help Curry out because we know how dangerous Malik can be uh, when he gets that first step on his opponent. Well, if the other guard is worn out a little bit, maybe Curry and Keedy can benefit from Seth Wilson's increased playing time. So I think it's a win for everyone because, I mean, Keedy Johnson had a pretty good game against Kansas State. It's not like I'm saying bench those guys permanently. It's just why aren't we trickling in the youth more? It could honestly benefit everybody. Yeah, and I look at like Iowa State, Kansas State, even to some extent, Oklahoma State, even though those are bottom half of the teams in the the Big 12 right now, they're teams who play really small lineups. You know, they play one big man um, and they're able to make it work for them. I mean, if you look at what Kansas State threw out there with us, um, if you look at what Iowa State threw out there with us, most of the time they had one guy who was six foot eight or taller. The rest of the guys were between six foot and six foot five, four guys out there around that size. And we could do that. I mean, we have the personnel to do that. And heck, you may even spot, be able to spotlight Jalen Bridges at the center a little bit if you need him to because he's such a good rebounder and he has a solid shot blocker too for his size. So I think we have the pieces where we could fix the problem or at least have p- unknowns that could potentially fix the problem. Um, but we're just, he just, Huggins just keeps going back to that same well of, you know, need to have a big man, need to have a defensive presence with the size and length. Um, and I think Gabe can do that, but, Gabe's in the doghouse now, so I think that also causes a lot more, a lot more problems. Yeah, yeah, and I do want to get to that here pretty soon. But here's another thing I've noticed, and I'm sure you and a lot of other fans have as well. During the Iowa State game, Wilson came in around the 15 minute mark of the first half, contributed early. He had a quick seven points, helping the Mountaineers on a 10-0 run, and then Coach Huggins just sits him after about two minutes of playing time and he scored seven points in those two minutes. So I'm not sure if I understand that decision. Coach seems to do that a lot with players who are heating up, like even the big guys against uh, Kansas state poly poly cap. I think he got an and one and then hit a free throw and then he, he pulled him right after the free throw. So what's the reasoning for that? Cause I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out either. He did that with Cottrell. Um, 
several games ago. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but he hit two nice mid-range jumpers, started off two for two. And he's a guy who needs confidence offensively. Um, then they pulled him. He's done it with Jalen Bridges before, where I think there was a game where Bridges has scored like six or eight points straight. Um, Bridges hits a free throw and he takes him out. You know, I get kind of managing minutes and getting rotations, but I think at this point at the season, you have to put your best guys out there at any cost. And if someone's getting hot, you got to keep them out there until they sub themselves out. Um, you know, I think rotations do serve a purpose for some point, especially if people are just kind of going out there and doing what's expected of them and they're not really hurting you, but you should be able to sub people out when they're playing really bad, which Huggins doesn't always do. Um, Or you shouldn't sub people out when they're playing really good, which Huggins does a lot. Um, You know, I remember several years ago, Huggins would kind of be quick with his hook and he still does that from time to time. Whenever someone does something really boneheaded, but I feel like he's gotten looser on that. Um, but he's kind of gotten tighter on his rotations and just saying, I'm going to let someone play through this, which I like. But at the same time, you have to be flexible enough to say, hey, this guy, he's got something going on right now. Let's see how let's see what else he can do through this next two or three minutes. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, you know, when you're a team that struggles as much as, you know, West Virginia does offensively, once you get a guy going, I mean, why in the world would you ever pull him? Like, you, you, Points are so hard to come by for this team. So if someone's out there making a couple buckets in a row, there's no way I would take him out. Not unless he's got his hands on his knees and like you're worried that you might injure a kid, which that never seems to be the case when he's yanking these guys out early. Um, I, I know I know we're like sitting here critiquing a Hall of Fame coach, future Hall of Fame coach, but here's something else I notice a lot too. Um we'll be giving up a, a really bad run. Like take, for example, the um, Oklahoma state game where Oklahoma state was just hammering West Virginia to open that second half. And Huggy bear just never wants to call a timeout to stop a run. I don't know. I mean, I've noticed he's done that in other games as well. And I, I don't understand why, because it seems like every other coach, in America, if you're watching a major college basketball game, as soon as the other team gets hot, they call a timeout, they settle things down. And for whatever reason, Coach Huggins doesn't do that until it seems to be too late. Yeah, and he's done that. Um, he did that a lot earlier in the season, too. I, I want to say maybe it was Marquette or Clemson or one of those non-conference games. And the announcers even talked about that. He says, you know, Huggins doesn't like taking timeouts close to those TV breaks. Um but still, you know, even if you are getting a free timeout coming up and your team's getting crushed, you got to call that timeout. I mean, it's not hurting anything, um, you know, and Huggins normally is really good at the end of the games, calling with his timeouts, getting the players in the right place, um, drawing up plays to, you know, put a game winning bucket in or get a game winning stop. I think in those situations, he's great. And it's great to have timeouts in those situations, but you got to get to those situations first. And you can't do that if a team's going to go on a 20 to four run. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, the Oklahoma state game, I, I remember even looking and making note of it, that we had three timeouts at that point. And, you know, by the time there was a break, I can't even remember if hugs called one or if it was a teamy t- TV timeout. By the time we got to a break, the game seemed to be over at that point. And so, I mean, what's it matter if you have a bunch of timeouts if you're getting blown out? Exactly. It it doesn't. It's you know, I feel like Huggins was in this situation 
what was it probably about five or six years ago when you had that team with like Eron Harris and all those other guys. I don't even remember who was on that team anymore because they all left immediately afterwards. But, um, you know, he, he kind of changed his game and that's when press Virginia came back or came around and he fixed it. Um, I feel like we're at a similar inflection point now where, you know, he came into the big 12 and it's changed on him where originally when he came in, it was about length and athleticism and, you know, less about skill. And Huggins even said that in a recent interview where he said, you know, we came in, we went out there and we got kids who were long and athletic enough to compete in the big 12. But if you look at what Oklahoma did, they went out there and just got guys with basketball skill and now they're killing it because they got guys with basketball skill. And, you know, I was wrong. I probably should have went out there and got guys who were better basketball players and not just better athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I do like that, you know, in these press conferences, sometimes he is admi- admitting to his mistakes. I mean, I think that is refreshing to hear sometimes and not just hearing a bunch of cookie cutter answers, but um um, you know, that brings us to our ne- next topic. During the Iowa State game, um, Gabe Osaboyan received a technical foul at the end of the first half for saying something to the ref. Then he received a double technical foul versus Oklahoma State for the same thing, and Gabe was ejected from the game. After being ejected, he exchanged some words with Coach Huggins, and it just wasn't a good look for the program. I understand Gabe's an emotional player, but uh, you know he wasn't really representing the school very well by doing that um, in back-to-back games. You know, I can I think Hugs even said this in a press conference. He can understand if it was a, a one-time incident. You know, people's emotions get flared up, but um, doing it in back-to-back situations like that wasn't a good look. And because of these incidents, Gabe did not play versus Kansas State. This was a coach's decision after getting three technicals in two games. Some fans took to social media to air their grievances about the decision. Personally, I was okay with it. What's your opinion on the situation? Uh, I get the suspension. Um you know, I don't have any problem with it or not suspension, but benching, I guess, is a better way of saying it because it's not a formal suspension. Um, but I, you know, I understand Gabe's frustration. And I think, you know, a, I think it's kind of showing to what a lot of people on the team were feeling, too. It's just that Gabe's more open with it. Um, I don't condone what he did, but I think it's just a, a symptom of what's going on. I mean, you're losing all these games and, you know, think about the situation Gabe's in. Think about the s- situation that Taz is in. These guys came back an extra year because they thought that they could do something this year. And now they might not even make the tournament. It's probably more likely than not that they won't make the tournament unless they really turn something around and get a big tournament run. So to think that your college career is going to end like that um, is hard. I mean, obviously, you know, Gabe is probably going to find someplace overseas where he's able to play. Taz, probably the same. Maybe gets a shot in the G League. But, you know obviously you want to end on a high note. You want to end with a tournament appearance. Um, Last year, the tournament was kind of disappointing. You went, you know, two games and out. So um, you want to improve on that, but it's not going to be that way. You might get into the NIT or the CBI and that's just, there's no motivation. I I think anymore to play in those games. Cause like we talked about before, there's no media attention to it. It really doesn't prove anything. So um, it's hard. And I think, you know, the way that the game's called sometimes I do think that the refs are inconsistent. We've touched on that in the past, Um, you know, and it's not necessarily egregious all the way around. There are some games where you can kind of say, Oh, well the refs favored WVU a lot because we shot 30 free throws. There's other ones where 
you can look at another team and say they shot 30 free throws and WV shot 20. So, but it's just the balance of the league. And I think that on top of the losing just makes it really hard, especially for someone who is more of a physical player like Gabe is and a very emotional player, like you said. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, I understand emotion is it, it's really a part of Gabe's game. You know, the reason he's so special is because he plays with so much passion um, and he's a special player because he cares more than anybody. It seems like about wins and losses. So, you know, he's going to wear his heart on his sleeve. But I do think part of Bob Huggins job is to help these guys become adults. Um, and, you know, some people would argue they're already adults, but uh I don't think so. I think if you're in college, you're, you're, you know, you're not fully an adult yet. And I know some fans will disagree with me on this, but I truly believe that is part of the coach's job. It's not just wins and losses. You're, you're trying to put decent people out into society for the future. So, so actions have consequences and sometimes a lesson can be more important than a win. I don't always agree with Coach Huggins. Obviously, we've talked about some stuff. But in this situation, I think Huggy Bear made the right decision. And I would bet if Gabe is interviewed in a year from now, he would probably agree. Obviously, you know, people need some time to put a situation in perspective. But in the long run, I bet you he'll appreciate the lesson that Huggins was trying to teach him. Yeah. So the one thing that I'm kind of concerned about, and this isn't about Gabe, it's just kind of about you know, kind of the social media and I think what's going on right now at the university as a whole um, for the basketball team. And that's, you know, we talked about last week where you had players coming out on social media complaining about the fans. I know after the Kansas State game, Bridges came out and said something else again. Um, and I think a lot of that contributing factor has to do with, you know, the losing and the continued losing, um, you know, and just that perception. And I, I, I hope that, since this is becoming such a common cadence from at least Bridges. Um, I know Taz does it a lot too, but he can't come back. But, you know, is, is there any chance that Jalen Bridges could leave if he perceives this fan base to be that toxic, whether real or not? And that's one thing that really concerns me, especially with all this losing, because if he looks back and he says, we're losing seven seniors this year, I can come back and be the guy, but these fan, if I don't do well enough, these fans are going to be in my face and I don't want to be around that. Should I go somewhere else? And then you look for similar examples of what players who've transferred does. And you look at someone down the road at Kentucky, you look at Oscar, who's having an amazing year. He could be national player of the year. You know, it, it kind of, if you think of it from their perspective, you could see a door open for someone like that to transfer. And I think we talked about it before with all the players leaving next year is shaping up to be a rough year, but what could end up happening with all this losing all this negative social media commentary going on and then everything else kind of maybe uncertainty and Huggins. Do we see more players leave um, in the day of the transfer portal? Yeah, it's definitely a real concern and it's worth discussing. Honestly, I'm getting sick of coming on here every week and having to discuss players getting attacked personally on social media. I mean, I've even said on here that the players need to, you know, not search for it, but it doesn't seem like they're searching for the negativity. It seems like it's showing right up in their DMs. And then Jalen Bridges is talking about how even his girlfriend's getting, you know, backlash for it. It's getting ridiculous. Like, I don't understand these people who have all this time to to do stuff like this. And you're right. 
I understand most schools have fans like this, and so you're going to get it no matter where you're at, but people want a fresh start if this is a consistent problem. And, you know, it, it sounds ridiculous, but they are going to chase players away. It doesn't seem like the fans would have that much power, but you probably do. I mean, if you keep attacking these guys personally, and now you're going after other people in their life, like, it, you're playing a dangerous game. If you're an actual West Virginia fan, you actually want to see us succeed, stop doing stuff like this. Oh, for sure. It's ridiculous. I mean, and I don't think Bridges has played bad either, so why go after these players? Um, he's young. He's a sophomore. He has the most potential out of anyone on this team, and he's a solid contributor, game in and game night, game in and game out. But, <laughs> you know, and and most instances, sure, he's not scoring 20 points a night. Do we think that he could probably score 20 points a night? Probably, but still, you know, he's pro- providing a good, solid contribution every game. He's putting in about 10 points a game. He's always leading the team in rebounds, even though he's six foot six. Um, and that's just Jalen. I mean, there's several other players. It's just ridiculous that, you know, someone like him who is from West Virginia, from Fairmont, right down the road, has to deal with all this because. He came to WVU because he was a WVU fan. And with all this, what's that going to change his perception? If you run off a WVU fan, that means you're doing something really, really awful because it's hard to take WVU out of a WVU fan's heart. Yeah, you're 100% right. And he is our future. I mean, he's only a sophomore. He's only going to get better his junior and senior year, which is when these players normally blossom and become complete players. So Don't be scaring him off right before he's going to hit his prime. Um, I know I'm hard on him sometimes, but that's just because I I say it all the time. He's my favorite player. I think he's got the most talent out of anyone on this roster, and he is going to put it together, and I hope it is in Morgantown. And even if he was playing terrible, it doesn't give these fans right any right to be attacking them or family members or girlfriends. I mean, it just needs to stop. I'm sick of even talking about it. For sure, yeah. So I'm hoping we don't have to talk about this topic again, but if it keeps up, I mean, it's going to be something that has to continue to be discussed at least until the word gets out there enough that it just stops because it's ridiculous. Yeah, and honestly, I wish the. I mean, I'm not for like mob mentality or cancel culture and all that stuff, but these players just need to start exposing them saying, hey, this is the guy's name, this is what he's doing, because if it has to come to that, then just put it out in public. Like, this is what these guys are doing. For sure, yeah. I'd, I'd be all for that. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on. The one last thing I wanted to talk about um, was, was recruiting. So, Huggins, his most successful run at West Virginia was with John Beeline players. So... You know, we we were kind of talking about this. Why doesn't he recruit players that John Beeline used to go after? I mean, why couldn't he just start focusing his recruiting on that style of player? That's a good question. I mean, I feel like sometimes he does try if he feels like he has a chance to, but it's not his primary type of guy. Like, um, I forget his name, but there was a four or five star recruit who came out of Polka, West Virginia end up coming to Virginia, but he was someone that kind of fit that mold, a long, tall shooter, Um, obviously talented enough to get a high recruiting, but, you know, not a super athletic, long shot blocker type of guy. He was kind of an atypical Huggins recruit. 
Um, but it was in Huggins' backyard, so you know you kind of have to go after those guys. Huggins kind of seems to like those gritty players, and I think that works to an extent. But I think if you look at what all these other smaller schools are doing, is they are doing exactly what Beeline did. They went out there and they're getting skilled players, they're getting shooters, they're getting people who know how to play the game. I mean, you look at these teams who make these deep tournament runs, like even um, Loyola Chicago. Do you think they were out there getting four or five star recruits? No, they were getting two star guys who could shoot. They knew how to box out. You know, they had some size. They worked hard and they made it with that. Um, I think Huggins still likes to kind of have that length and athleticism, athleticism advantage, um, the ability to guard defensively really well. Um, but you know, I also think he's scared off by chasing after some of the higher end prospects too. Like if you look at early on in his WVU career where he was going after guys like Tobias Harris, who ended up committing to Michigan State and a couple other guys, because if you remember right, right before that is when he um, recruited uh, Michael Beasley and Bill Walker to Kansas State. And that was the best recruiting class in the country. And he recruited them to Manhattan, Kansas. Who wants to go there? Um, he tried that at WVU and, you know, end up getting poached by Michigan state and Tennessee and others. So I don't know why he gave up after that. He did have some good early recruiting classes with Ebanks and Kevin Jones and um, truck Bryant and things like that. Um, but after that, it just kind of seems like the battle became too hard for him. So he decided just to go back to kind of what he was good at at Cincinnati, which was recruiting overlooked guys, undersized guys, but guys who just wanted to work hard. But in the Big 12, it's changing where we need those more skilled guys. And I just don't think he's adapted to that yet. No, no. It seems like we're we're a year or two behind everyone else because everyone else is playing small lineups with a bunch of skilled players. And we're still trying to, you know, put he still loves to play two centers, which just sounds like prehistoric at this point. Yeah. And if you look at like what Baylor does at even Oklahoma State, I mean, basically every team in the Big 12, except for maybe Kansas, you know, they do have that one or two super long athletic guy, but they bring him in early. They let him develop for a year or two, and then they play, put them out there. I mean, you look at, um, I don't even want to try to pronounce his name, the kid from Baylor. Um, oh, he has right. like 75 letters in his name. Um, <laughs> you know, he's one of those long athletic guys that you have to teach. And Scott Drew is great at that. I mean, if you look at all the players he's put into the league um, who fit that mold, kind of under recruited guys who are just long and athletic. Huggins could still do that, but you need to have your backcourt and even your forward positions. You need to have some really skilled guys because athleticism doesn't necessarily win in today's game. Yet you could be crafty. Um, and, you know, that even works in NBA. I mean, look at Luka Doncic. He's not athletic. Nikola Jokic, he's not athletic, but they're crafty and they know how to play the game and they're able to dominate um, because they're smart and they play well. Um, obviously, you're not going to get that level of player in college, but you can get someone who's smart enough to make the right play and score buckets. And that's what we're missing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I do think hugs will figure it out. Um, you know, it was just a few years ago, the Esau mod years where we were very frustrated. Fans were saying the same stuff. And then we had a good stretch with Derek Culver and Deuce and a bunch of other really good players that, um, you know, put together some good teams. So I do think he'll, he'll dig his way out of this, but, um, I don't know. It's it's just been a rough year. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, I thought 
you know, this would be a year where we could have played well. I, I do think, honestly, I think one player, if you swap out Polycap or Kerrigan for another wing or just another kind of, you know, someone who could shoot from the outside, just one more guy who's anywhere between 6'3 and 6'7 um, and from the transfer portal, I think this team looks vastly different. And just that one little small difference, because right now there's a huge gap between just someone else who can score the ball um, off the off the jump. Um, I mean, Curry's great at finishing around the rim. Our bigs can't score at all. Um, it's just, you know, we either need another shooter or we needed a big man who could score in the post. But, I, you know, I would have preferred the, the wing who could score, who could shoot. No, yeah, I think if Derek Culver came back this year, I think we easily have, you know, four more wins than we have right now. Easily. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so, all right, so let's get into the Kansas preview. Kansas is currently 21-4. and four. They're 10-2 and two in conference play, and they are currently on a two-game winning streak, beating Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. It's a night game in Morgantown, which has some magic to it sometimes. But like I said earlier in the podcast, it's just really hard for me to keep saying this is the week WVU is going to turn it around. So how do you feel about the Kansas game? I mean, Kansas is always a a game that brings the fans out. I personally find Kansas to be the most boring Big 12 team because every single year they're at the top. Um, what was it up until last year? They've they won the Big 12 for what like 15 years straight or something stupid. Um, they always seem to have guys on their team who have been there for seven years that you haven't heard of until the past three, and they just kind of kill you with that guy. Um, and now they're coming to Morgantown, but the you know, they've won four of the last five, they're extremely good, they're one of the top 10 teams in the country. Um, but you know, in Morgantown. WVU actually does pretty well against Kansas, regardless of how good that Kansas team is, and even regardless of how bad that WVU team is. So WVU in the last nine meetings um, is six and three in Morgantown against Kansas, which is which is pretty good. I was actually surprised by that. So, um, you know, maybe there is some magic. Maybe, you know, Huggins kind of always does kind of save his best coaching performance at least once a year against Kansas. He does get a little bonus from that, so can't blame him there. Um, and obviously, you know, the team is probably gonna come out with some fire because they need to win. Um, and especially if Gabe is able to come back recharged, energized, sitting out a couple games, I'm sure he's going to come out and do some, do some work defensively as well too. So, um, I just definitely a game that I still encourage everyone to watch. Um, hopefully it's not a game you have to turn off at halftime, but anything can happen in Morgantown. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's definitely some magic to night games, whether it's football or basketball. Um, my only concern is how we just consistently fade in the second half. I could actually see this being a pretty tight contest until, you know, the last four, three minutes, because that just seems to be our MO this year. What I don't understand is up until about when was the first Kansas State game? Was that um, January? Um, I think it was, but up until that point, we were really good at closing out games. And ever since kind of that game where we came back from what we were down like 18 against Kansas state, mm-hmm. we haven't been able to finish games. So I don't know what happened between now and then from being a team that starts slow to a team that start finishes slow. Um, I don't know if it's like an emphasis from Huggins to do something different at the beginning of the games 
or if players are just running out of gas because it's a long season. And also remember that WVU is traveling more miles than probably any other team in the country getting to these games out in Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and plane rides over and over again, multiple times a week aren't easy. So, um, you know, it could just be a, a myriad of things. So really hoping that, you know, things kind of turn itself around, but it's just kind of weird how we've been falling off at the end of games. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, like you said, definitely encourage everyone to watch. I'll always tune in no matter what. I'm just hoping it's an entertaining game on Saturday. So uh, to switch gears just a little bit, you all good with Kansas? Oh, yeah. Okay. So just switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about football real quick. So the um, the new West Virginia coach, Coach Neil Brown and West Virginia have announced their new wide receiver coach, Tony Washington. Me, I think this is a good hire. Coach Washington spent the past two seasons coaching the wide receivers at Coastal Carolina. Their offense and especially their wide receivers immediately began to flourish once Tony Washington was hired on that staff. Prior to that, he coached at Louisville and East Carolina. He also spent four years in the NFL. So I'm super excited to see what Coach Washington can do with Graham Harrell and the wide receivers at West Virginia. What do you think? Yeah, I like the hire too. And I know it seems like a lot of WVU fans were kind of bummed out that we didn't get someone else. I know people were uh, calling for what was his name, Carrier, um, mm-hmm. who just about, I think, um, let go from Houston. He was former wide receivers coach here. And then also Stedman Bailey, um, an alumni. But, you know, I do like the Washington hire because these are the type of guys that WVU needs to kind of go get. And these are young, up and coming coaches. We're starting off at smaller programs, and you got to poach them when they're young before they get in somewhere else. Um, another thing I like about it is he does have NFL experience. He did get to the NFL from a small school. He went to Appalachian State. Um, so he's going to be able to connect to some of these younger wide receivers, not only on the team, but on the recruiting trail. Um, because if you look at kind of some of the best recruiters in the nation, they're people who played in the NFL and they can kind of talk to these players, not only about how to get to the league, but, you know, and getting through college because they've been there. They've done that. They've been, uh, you know, division one football player and they kind of know all the struggles that go along with it. Um, and they've done it fairly recently. I mean, you think if, if he was coaching for the past three years and NFL for four, he was in college eight years ago. So the, the game's not that much different. The only difference is the transfer portal, which maybe he can go talk to some of those wide receivers there and say, Hey, come, come play for me. So I like the hire. Um, I really don't see any downfalls of it. Um, I, I can't think of anyone else. I'd rather have the job right now. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have liked Stedman Bailey to be the coach or carrier. He did a great job when he was here with Dana, but I have no issue with it for everything you just said. I mean, he has NFL experience. These college kids do want to make it to the NFL so he can sell that to them. Hey, I have experience. I know what it takes to get there. Come play for me. And I mean, the past two years, I don't know if you've caught a lot of Coastal Carolina games. I have here and there. And they are a fun team to watch. They have a good offense. Even if you look at um, the stats that guys put up once he got there, I mean, it was day and night. So to me, he has a track record. Like you said, he's a young up and coming coach. That's what you want. So yeah, I love the hire. I think he's going to do a lot of great things here. Yeah, definitely. And it's not to say that, you know, Carrier and Stedman wouldn't be great to see here. There's no knock on them. I just think it's kind of hard to pass up on someone who, 
has the accolades that that Washington's showing. Uh, you know, I know some people look at Coastal Carolina and they're like, oh, Coastal Carolina, what is that? Um, they're legit Division One school who I think was ranked in the top 25 um, probably more often than WVU, WVU has been the past couple of years. So good <laughs> team and um, really dynamic, fun offense, like you said. So um, absolutely agree. Good, good hire. Yeah, 100%. So uh, before we get into our rankings, you had a new segment you wanted to drop this week. Oh, yeah. So we're going to do uh, Guess That Player. And uh, basically what this is going to be is I'm going to give Tyler um, some attributes of a player from WVU, whether it be for football or basketball, give him some hints and see if he can guess it. Um, I'm going to try to avoid naming superstar players here because that might be a little bit too easy. I'm also going to try to avoid uh, talking about walk-ons unless they actually did something noteworthy. So this should be fun and kind of show how brilliant uh, these two young gentlemen that you are listening to right now know their WVU football. Um, So first, a wide receiver from 2012 to 2015. Um, He was... He put up about 1,300 total yards of offense, receiving yards, two touchdowns during his time. Um, this one might be a dead giveaway, but he was five foot seven, 176 pounds. Was it McCartney? No. Was it Shorts? Nope. Oh, man. He is short. What's that? He is short, five foot seven. Ah oh, man, he didn't put up any more yards than that. Mm-mm. 598 yards his junior year, two touchdowns. His senior year, 509 yards, zero touchdowns. Oh man, this has to be a little utility guy that they used at wide receiver, and there were so many that they did that with. But he was number 10. Number 10. Oh man, this is gonna drive me nuts when I hear it. All right, who was it? Jordan Thompson. Ah, Jordan Thompson. Okay. That's a tough one, though. Jordan Thompson. (laughs) It's not that deep of a cut, but it's a little bit of a deep cut. This next one uh, should be a little bit easier um, because he plays a quarterback that everyone knows, or he plays a position everyone knows. He plays quarterback. Um, So this young man played um, for WVU from 2008 to 2012, I believe. he started off at quarterback, but ended up moving to wide receiver for his last two years. Six foot tall, about 175 feet. Uh, 175 pounds. Um, <laughs> he did see some playing time at quarterback. Um, he finished with three rushes for seven yards with a long of 13 yards. Um, he did make one appearance at quarterback against Marshall. And he did also catch a few passes against Coastal Carolina his sophomore year. So a um, couple seasons at quarterback, couple seasons at wide receiver. Two names come to mind, but I don't think they played during those years. William Kress came later, right? Yep. And Char- Charles Hayes, I think was before that. Mm-hmm. Or Hales, Hayes. Yeah. I can give you um, one more hint that will give it, uh, it might be too much of a hint, but okay. he has a, a famous family member um, at WVU. Currently, no, he played for WVU. Legendary. Oh man, 
from Daphne, Alabama. Oh, Colby White. Yes, Coley White. Coley White. Okay. Man, these are some deep cuts. Like, man. I forgot he played. And I saw it. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I completely forgot he was on the roster. I remember his brother, but yeah. Yeah, I remember when he was on the team, people were like, man, why isn't he getting a shot at quarterback? He just wasn't a quarterback. (laughs) No. Plus, I mean, that's when uh, Gino was starting, right? Yeah, I think so. 2012, that's about the same. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a hard (laughs) line up the crack when he's breaking records every week. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Whew. There's just some tough ones. I better start (laughs) studying for this. Yeah, the the, the third option I had um, that I ended up not going with was uh, Shaq Rowell. I remember him. I always liked his name, but I didn't end up going with him as one of the choices. So, Did he play defense? Yeah, he was a nose tackle. He actually played uh, in the NFL for a minute. Okay. I think I remember him. All right. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Let's get into part three of our top 50 football players at West Virginia in the 21st century. This is rankings 40 to 36. Coming in at number 40, Ryan Monday. Monday transferred from Michigan and only played at West Virginia during the 2007 season. However, in his lone season at WVU, Ryan Monday had three interceptions, a couple fumble recoveries, and was a playmaking safety for the Mountaineers. He also had a decent NFL career playing for the Steelers, the Giants, and then having his best pro season with the Chicago Bears, getting four interceptions, over 100 tackles, and even scoring a 91-yard touchdown, and uh, that's all in one season, too. So it seemed like once he was starting to hit his stride, he had a horrible hip injury, and that that kind of ended his career. Yeah. Um, You know, in the one year that he was at WVU, that was probably the most, the year that we needed him most. That was the year that we won the Fiesta Bowl, probably almost won a national championship if uh, Rich Rod hadn't have lost and blown the pit game. Still salty about that. But, uh (laughs) During that season, he ended up finishing fourth in tackles and first in picks. And, you know, that 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 team with Pat White and Steve Slayton and that group was known for its offense. But that defense that year was really good. Um, and part of that was because of Ryan Mundy. They were the 14th best pass defense in the nation, eighth best in points per game against in the nation. Um, and, you know, Ryan Mundy was given the recognition that he deserves by getting a 2007 all big east nomination um and another thing about ryan mundy was that he was a great student athlete as well so he came over as this was before the transfer portal he came over as one of those senior transfers who um was able to transfer to wvu without sitting because his um master's degree program wasn't offered at michigan so he was able to do that at west virginia and because of that he was named the National Football Foundation and the College Football Hall of Fame Honor Society Scholar Athlete of the Year in 2007 as well. So smart guy, um, really great Mountaineer. Um, you know, and like you said, he he had a really nice NFL career. He did win a Super Bowl with the Steelers in his second year in the league. So he is a Mountaineer with the ring. Um, that's always fun to have. Um, and you know what he's doing now he actually is a founder of a a startup um called alchemy um which is kind of like calm um if anyone's familiar with the calm app that does guided meditations on your phone 
and also offers mental health courses provided by um, black therapists. So trying to support that community as well. So seems like he's using that money he got throughout the NFL to kind of make people's lives better. So not only a great football player, but seems like a really great person who's trying to really help up with the people around him. Yeah, I was always a fan of Ryan Monday. You know, if he would have played at West Virginia for more than one year, he would have been a lot higher on this list because he was just that special. And uh, I always liked seeing him play in the NFL as well. Um, I'm a Steeler fan, so I got to see him, you know, playing special teams here and there. I think he even, you know, got some safety snaps um, Mm -hmm. a, a few years. So it was always special to see a West Virginia player playing a lot of time in the NFL. Yeah, he ended up having 30 starts in his career. Most of them were with Chicago, um, which ended up being his best and last season. Um, He actually ended up switching from free safety, which is where he played at WVU. He played at at Michigan. He played at for all the other teams to strong safety in the Bears. So um, seems like, you know, maybe he found something that worked for him. And then, like you said, that hip injury took it away. But, you know, it was always fun watching him play because he was, you know, you, you kind of as a fan underrate what it means to have a really good center fielder back there, like Jamil Adai, who, who we'll talk about in a later uh, version of this list, but having someone out there who is that good, who can kind of take away, you know, one half of the field or even the deep part of the field um, is invaluable. And you really don't realize what, you know, how much you miss it until it's gone. Um, And, you know, not having Ryan Mundy, obviously our defense took a drop off. Um, but, you know, just a really great player and should always be remembered by Mountaineer Nation for everything that he gave during that one year and um, his great NFL career. And then obviously the good things that he's doing now after his football career has ended. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. You're right for 39. Yep. Let's do it. It's coming in at 39 is Najee Good. Najee played at West Virginia from 2008 to 2011 and was a starting linebacker his final two seasons. He ended his career with 22 and a half tackles for a loss, eight sacks, and two interceptions. His best season was his senior year when he was top 10 in the Big East in total tackles and tackles for a loss. Not only was Najee Good successful in college, but again, he went on to play eight years in the NFL and won a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles. So shout out to Najee Good. Oh, for sure. And that senior year was incredible for him because um, he ended up not only leading the team in tackles, but he was also tied for second in tackles for loss. And he was also third on the team in sacks with five sacks. Um, And that was the year they had Bruce Irvin. So I believe it was Bruce. Bruce Irvin was first. Julian Miller might have been second, and he was third. So um, normally you don't see linebackers getting a lot of sacks unless they're playing on the outside, but he was playing the middle and got five sacks there. Um, His senior year, the run defense wasn't fantastic, but his junior year, um, WVU actually had the second-best run defense in the nation. Um, And that's a big testament to the things that Najee did. Um, Like you said, eight-year career. He only started eight games, but he did play in 90. Um, Fifth-round draft pick by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Played for four different teams. And I believe he was um, on the practice squad for Indianapolis as recent of 2020. So, you know, there's always a chance that maybe he pops up again somewhere, maybe in the Canadian Football League, or he might retire. But, you know, um, 
kind of surprised me when I saw that because it seems like it was forever ago when he played for us. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, he even scored a touchdown in the NFL on a block punt, so just a solid career overall. And um, I didn't dive too much into it, but I think he had um, some some stuff he was doing after his playing career as well. Did you look into that at all? Yeah, uh, so he was um, actually the director of, I think, um, some sort of, I think, digital content for the NFL for a short period of time. But then he spun off and started his own company. Um, he's a co-founder of a company called v- VPIO. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, but what it is, is it's a content optimization tool for the NFL. So he built the app for the NFL and it allows fans to basically, so you have pictures and videos and it allows them to touch it and interact with the pictures so you, they can like embed links and things into those pieces of the the item or whatever so that people can bring up links or web pages or other things like that. Um, I can't, I don't know if I've seen the tool in use, but looking at the web page, it looks like it's pretty nifty. And uh, if they haven't released something on it yet, um, I think it'd be something to cool play around with. So after we jump off here, I might try to see if they have an app out there and play around with whatever their thing does. But um, the last thing I wanted to note about Najee Good is that um, I do have a career highlight for him. I wasn't able to find a good one for, for Ryan Mundy, but uh, my career highlight for Najee Good was um, he laid a monster hit on Maryland running back David Meggett in 2011, um, where he just absolutely annihilated him. You could hear the the pads crunch, and those are always um, fun because you don't hear that as much anymore in um, the days where flags are rampant. Uh, because of big hits yeah yeah 100 percent um so yeah shout out to Najee good just a great career in the pros and in college second and 12 after the loss of two Meggett blown up again and a late flag is thrown into the pile maybe a high hit there Najee good laying the lumber Coming in at 38, we got Darius Renard. He he played at West Virginia from 2004 to 2007. He was the perfect wide receiver threat the Mountaineers needed during the Pat White and Steve Slayton era. He could run the ball. He could catch. He could return kicks. Darius was the ultimate utility player for those teams. He ended his career with over 1,500 receiving yards, over 400 rushing and over 1,000 return yards. So he also finished with 22 total touchdowns, 19 of which came from the air, two on the ground, and then even one on a kickoff return. So Darius carved out a nice NFL career being a return specialist and was twice named to the second team All-Big East while he was at West Virginia. So shout out to Darius Renard. Oh, yeah. And he's, you know, if you look at his stats now, they don't seem like much. But I think in the context of the offense that he played in, it was really exceptional what he was doing. Um, You know, his senior year was 733 receiving yards, 12 touchdowns. Um, He was the second leading receiver in 2006 behind Brandon Miles. He was actually two yards behind Brandon Miles that year um, with 520 yards receiving and then led the team in receiving yards with the 733 yards in 2007. Um, and despite the numbers don't that, even though they don't seem that great, he is tied for sixth all time in career touchdown receptions at WVU 
and fifth all-time in single-season touchdown receptions with those 12 he had in 2007. So he's going to be remembered forever um, as long as we don't have any more truly great seasons coming up for that 12-touchdown season he had. Um, he did have a really nice NFL career as well. He was undrafted, but um, played with the Vikings, and he played for four teams in a five-year career where he was their return specialist for all these teams. So um, he returned over 100 punts for almost 1,000 yards, and he also had two punt return touchdowns, um, also a, over 100 kick returns for over 2,347 yards and also one kick return touchdown in the NFL. Um, he was two-time Special Teams Player of the Week, and he was also the September 2012 AFC Special Teams Player of the Month during his time in the NFL. So um, well-decorated for that short five-year career that he had, but um, you know it was always fun watching him. I remember him most for Tennessee because I think that's where he spent most of his time. But um, yeah, really liked watching Darius in the NFL. Yeah, me as well. I believe he had two returns for a touchdown in a single game, which is a pretty rare feat in the NFL. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and honestly, his most the most memorable play I had for him while he was at WVU was um, I think it was actually Sports Center's play of the week during it, and it was his um kick return against Maryland. Um, it was the one where the ball was coming down and he tried to catch it and he bobbled it and it bounced and he caught it and then ran like 95 yards for a touchdown off of it. Um, you know, it wasn't the prettiest play, but it was just amazing to see his athleticism and quickness and reaction time to be able to pull that off. And he kicks the ball away. It's a good kickoff, angling toward the left. It will be fielded by Renaud from the five. He bobbles the ball, loses it, picks it up on a hop, and he takes it over the 20, cuts to the outside 25. There he goes at the 30. He's at the 40. It's a foot race to the 50. He's going to go all the way. Renaud to the 30, the 25, the 20, the 50. Yeah, he was definitely special. And like we said earlier, if you go back and look at the numbers, maybe you're younger and don't remember them. Um, you got to keep in mind that was the era where WVU ran the ball majority of the time. So his numbers could have been a lot better if he played in, say, a Dana Holgerson type of offense. He was definitely talented. And uh, the play I think of a lot when I hear his name is the the catch he had in the Fiesta Bowl where he almost like spun around when he caught it and then went oh, right yeah. to the end zone. Patrick White, the junior QB, takes the snap, rolling to his left, throwing pass, caught, touchdown to Darius Reynard, wide open. A 21-yard touchdown reception from Pat White to Darius Reynard. And with two minutes and 27 seconds to go in this opening half, West Virginia answers again. And they lead the Oklahoma Sooners 19-6. And Darius Reynard was open from Martinsburg to Matewan. <laughs> and all parts in between. So... Definitely fond memories of him playing because that was one of the best eras of Mountaineer football. Oh, for sure. And I, you know, going into this, you know, I looking back at some of the stats, I was kind of surprised that his numbers were a lot less than, you know, what it seemed like at the time. But, you know, in between that and today, we had Dana Holgerson with all those thousand yard receivers. And I think that kind of skewed my view as to what a great season was. And 733 yards is nothing to scot turn your head at. And 12 touchdowns is absolutely incredible um, for a wide receiver to have. So fantastic 
seasons. Um, fantastic career for Darius and uh, made some nice money playing in the NFL as well. Yeah, 100%. Coming in at 37, we have Quentin Spain. Quentin played at West Virginia from 2011 to 2014. He was an athletic big man who stood at six foot four and over 330 pounds. Quentin Spain switched between left guard and left tackle when they needed him to, which speaks volumes about his intelligence and athletic ability while he was here that they were able to move him around. And just like everybody we've mentioned so far today, Spain has had a successful pro career. After playing for the Titans and Bills, he signed with the Cincinnati Bengals and just helped his team make a Super Bowl appearance. So West Virginia fans currently aren't too happy with him as he announced you know, during the Super Bowl that he went to Spain Gang University, whatever that is. Um, instead of West Virginia, but, uh, you know, that didn't upset me that much. Shout out to Quentin Spain. Uh, don't be too hard on him, Mountaineer Nation. He was a heck of a player. Oh, for sure. And he was a big-time recruit coming in, too. Um, he was a four-star recruit coming out of high school. Um, some outlets had him ranked as the number two offensive guard in the nation. Um, so it was a big get whenever Quentin walked on the field in Morgantown. Um, he also played in the Army All-American game. Um, started 37 games at left tackle and left guard collectively. Um, earned himself an all Big 12 honorable mention after the 2013 season. And um, like you said, he had a really nice career and with the, with the uh, in the NFL. So with the Titans, he started 50 of 52 games for the Titans from 2015 to 2018. And mind you, being undrafted and doing that is incredible. Um, his next stop at Buffalo started 19 of 21 games, um, uh, from 2019 to 2020. And then during that 2020 season, he ended up in Cincinnati where he started 28 of 29 games, including the Super Bowl at left guard. Um, and according to PFF, he allowed, he, he allowed the least the 11th least amount of sacks in 2021 by any offensive lineman. So really, really exceptional player um and great career i mean really solid offensive lineman too um i do actually have a memorable play for him too um so he made a really nice potentially nowadays illegal um peel back block versus baylor um where he absolutely destroyed i think it was a linebacker safety coming back on a um reverse play um and that big man on that person who was not so big um, I'm surprised the guy got up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a big dude. And uh, I didn't realize he was ranked that high for uh, PFF, which is pretty impressive because Cincinnati Bengals, their offensive line is not exactly known for being that good. So it's it's impressive that he stands out on that line. Yeah, definitely. All right, coming in at number 36, our last one for today is Letty Brown, who all of us remember pretty well. Letty played at West Virginia from 2018 to 2021. Um, he carried a big portion of the offense these past two seasons, eclipsing 1,000 yard mark his junior and senior season. He finished his career with over 3,400 total yards and 32 touchdowns. You know, Letty is ranked sixth all time at West Virginia in rushing yards and rushing touchdowns. So hopefully he carves out a nice pro career for himself, just like all of these other guys we've mentioned, 
because Letty Brown, he was just an easy guy to root for, and we're going to miss him here at West Virginia. Oh, for sure. I mean, even when he was a backup, he was contributing pretty well. So he had almost 200 carries as a backup over a two-year period, ran for almost or for over 800 yards and five touchdowns. And then when he was a starter, he kind of just took over. And like you talked about, had those two thousand yard seasons. Um, he was named all big 12 first team in 2020, all big 12 honorable mention in 2021, um, tied for 10th most rushing TDs in a season at WVU. Um, and he, he was just such a physical runner. I mean, watching him run, it seemed like whenever someone made contact with him, he didn't really slow down. He just kept moving. It's like a hot knife through butter. Um, really exciting player to watch, especially because of that physicality. Um, and, and the thing that always impressed me with him was that he could also, you know, big guys like that normally just kind of like running in between the tackles. And that's kind of what they do. They don't really adapt their game, but he adapted his game to be a receiving threat as well. And had over, I believe it was over 400 yards, career receiving yards as well. So um, just kind of shows you the dedication he had to his craft and how much work he put into it um, to become, you know, one of the top five or so backs in WVU history. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, Letty was just playing for WVU a couple months ago. So, you know, for most of these guys, it takes some time to really appreciate how good they were when they were here. Um, but, you know, we will definitely miss Letty next year. And, um, you know, hopefully we can pick up where he left off because, like we said, during his junior and senior year, he was a big, big portion of um, – our offense. So it's, it's going to be tough to replace them, but um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think he's good enough to play in the pros. I, I bet he's, he'll get at least a couple years in the NFL. I think so too. I, I think he's probably one of the more NFL ready, like goal line sort of back short yardage backs. You know, maybe he doesn't work out as an every down back he could with his work ethic. But I think when it comes to like that old school kind of physical downhill runner, someone who can get you those two or three yards when you need it, I think he's that that type of guy, and he's a good guy to complement more of, you know, what the modern day NFL looks for in those smaller, shifty guys. So he could end up having a nice role in that. And to your point with the impact that he had on this team, um, I went through and looked at his stats in comparison to the rest of the yards that were put up the past couple of years, and he scored thirty five percent of all of WVU's non um, passing touchdowns. So receiving touchdowns count, passing touchdowns you know, since it's double counting, didn't include that. So 35% of the team's touchdowns in 2020, 37% of the team's touchdowns in 2021. Um, he also had nearly twice as many scrimmage yards as any other Mountaineer in 2021. So he had 1,282 total scrimmage yards in 2021. The next highest was Winston Wright with 690. In 2020, it was even more crazy than that so he had over twice as many scrimmage yards than any other mountaineer um he had 1212 total scrimmage yards winston wright again was next with 557 so he had over double that which is absolutely insane to me yeah and it's almost a shame he doesn't get at least one year under new offensive coordinator graham harrell who's obviously known for you know, the passing game, not so much the running, but if, if, you know, coach Graham Harold really gets the passing game going, that's going to open up a lot of running games for or running lanes for whoever's taking on 
Letty's spot next year. Oh, for sure. Um, so kind of the, the last things I have for Letty are my most memorable moments. And I actually did two for him um, because it was so hard to narrow it down. And because it's so recent, you know, there's just a lot um, more at the top of my mind. But the first one I had was uh, the 75 yard touchdown run against Virginia Tech. I think it was like the second or third play of the game. And just because it's the Black Diamond Trophy game, it was the first time we played uh, Virginia Tech at home in a very long time. And, you know, two or three offensive plays in the game, he breaks that off. Um, it felt like the um, the stadium was going to explode um, just with how loud it got. Um, very, very fun play. There's Lenny Brown up the middle with a big hole. Lenny Brown right up the gut. Inside the 10. Um, and then my second one was um, not so much of a physically impressive play, but more of a, an important play um, and kind of just showed what Letty was really good at. And that was, um, I think it was double overtime against Baylor. He scored the three yard touchdown run to win the game. Um, and he kind of ran through a defensive lineman who, again, it seemed like he wasn't even there whenever Letty was running through him. Um, so just fantastic. Yeah, honestly, those are the two games that stick out to me as well for Letty Brown. I mean, obviously the long touchdown run against Virginia Tech, but that double overtime, I think it was double overtime, right, against Baylor last yeah. year in 2020 was definitely a memorable game as well. So, Third down and a yard. Letty Brown, he's got the first down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna it's gonna be tough to replace them next year. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think you know, watching Letty these past couple years, I, I knew he was good. But I think looking back at everything that he did and what he meant to the teams that he was on, in context with everything else that was going on, um, you know, we may look back at this and think he's maybe a little bit too low. We'll have to revisit this in a couple years and see where he's at. Yeah, I agree. All right. That's all I got today. You got anything else? No, that's all. All right, guys, as always, we appreciate you for listening to us. Um, tune in next week and uh, please follow us on any of our social media accounts so that you can see when we upload stuff. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening and uh, have a good rest of your day. <laughs>